we believe better patient experiences begin with a commitment to every aspect of healthcare. This is Full Circle Healthcare, a MedSphere podcast. Hey everyone, this is Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B, and welcome to another episode of Full Circle Healthcare, a MedSphere podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate you listening along to some broader healthcare industry thought leadership. Today, we're going to be digging into the intersection between some high-level issues that are impacting our country and how technology can be part of the solution. Before I get into the actual meat of the topic, I want to make sure you're getting all of the content uh, that you desire from the MedSphere team. So make sure that you're going to our website, MedSphere.com. Again, M-E-D-S-P-H-E-R-E.com for more information on solutions and services, how we fit into the healthcare industry, uh, but also for more MedSphere content, including episodes of the podcast, articles, videos, and more. You can also subscribe to Full Circle Healthcare on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. So just hit that subscribe button and you'll have a full catalog of all of our previous thought leadership and episodes, as well as notifications, little pings when we get new ones uploaded to the site. So let's go ahead and jump into today, breaking down some of the strategies and the behind using registries to prevent opioid use. So here to offer some perspective today and help us connect the dots is Mr. David McFarlane. He's marketing communications manager with MedSphere Systems. David, great to have you on. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Daniel. Thanks. How are you? Doing very well. Thank you for asking. And I appreciate you joining and giving us some insights here. Uh, you know, again, this is a timely issue. It's one that has been uh, reported on and dissected now for the last several years. Uh, and so let's start there by just kind of analyzing where the opioid epidemic is at today. Maybe some of the potential positive progress that's been made around uh, addressing it, but then also where it is still impacting Americans negatively. So what do you see as the current state of the epidemic today and what efforts are being made to deal with said addiction in the U.S.? Uh, good question. So from a high level view, obviously, I think most people are aware of the fact that the pandemic has not has not really helped to alleviate, to uh, ameliorate the uh, opioid um, crisis that we've been going through now for a few, for a few years. So um, the unfortunate aspect of it is that um, the results of it, I don't think, have improved much in the last years, few years as we've dealt with the pandemic as well. There is a lot of attention now paid to it. So if we were to gauge potential success or looking forward to future success, you would think that um, paying attention to a lot of these issues actually might be helpful in terms of funding coming from various government entities and the establishment of um, different agencies to focus on this alone. And we're seeing that gradually. But um, I don't know yet that the country has turned a corner in terms of – in just raw numbers, in terms of seeing fewer deaths, in terms of um, how it's impacting individual lives. Uh, I guess, um, you know, honestly, the Purdue Pharma thing um, has made a lot of people uh, really aware of the prevalence of opioids in this society and what can potentially happen. And maybe they're a little more skeptical about um, drug marketing. You know, we could have a longer conversation about whether or not they should be. But now in popular culture, there's a lot more information. A lot more people, I think, are aware of, of it because of uh, what happened with Purdue and the Sackler family. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up, too. I mean, it is 
I, like I think addressing some of that core, um, I guess you know, power dynamic or imbalance that pushes this challenge forward, I think is also useful for people to analyze what is my individual role in this? Like what is actually in my power to address something like opioid addiction? What is also something that's kind of out of my individual control that, um, you know, can be, uh, can be almost more refocusing, right? And can just help, I think, paint a better picture for anyone dealing with addiction to get the help they need when all the dots are connecting. Um, you know, we mentioned this is going to be a conversation around technology. So let's go ahead and just jump right into that touch point. Can you break down for us what a prescription drug monitoring program, as well as what an electronic prescription for a controlled substance actually is in practice? So again, a PDMP or an EPCS, uh, what is their function currently? Do they work well? Uh, what's your view there? So uh, a PDMP is a, uh, a state-level program in which basically the state has a registry that tracks um, the administration of opioid level. Um, actually, I think Medicaid calls them class D. Uh, basically, we'd say that they're uh, narcotics for the most part. And they track uh, the administration of those by uh, pharmacists um, in various ways. The registry exists, but the registry is not a standardized thing technologically across every state system. And not every state actually has a PDMP at all. Um, the EPCS is simply the electronic prescribing of controlled substances. And this is basically when providers would send an electronic prescription to a pharmacy. And then we have an electronic record of it having been sent. And you could link the EPCS with the state registry so that can be automated. And it becomes part of the database um, if it's set up you know, in this way in real time. Currently, we've got 22 states that require both of these, that have both a PDMP and an EPCS um, requirements or programs. Um, there are six in the District of Columbia that don't have either one. And then the rest of the states are somewhere in between. Um, they may have one and they're planning on getting the other. They may have one with no plans to get the other. Um, but all of the states should be looking at it at this point. Um, there's federal legislation that required uh, Medicaid Part D drugs be submitted electronically, and that goes into effect in January. It may be delayed by CMS simply because some of the technological requirements are going to be difficult for individual hospitals and for some states to meet. So they want to encourage the states to do that, um, but not make the requirements so onerous that they have trouble actually complying. What's the dynamic there of how these are actually oversighted and, uh, you know, I pushed onto the industry, like they're useful, but right, you know, like what's actually motivating the use? That federal legislation that I mentioned that goes into effect, that is what's going to mandate the use. And then it'll be managed at the state level. So the federal government is basically saying, and they're going to control, because the federal government controls Medicare and Medicaid funds, they have some leverage. Um, and they can say, you know, we're not going to reimburse for certain things like um, prescriptions if you don't start submitting all of them electronically. And if you don't have a state registry set up so that you know exactly who's administering what and to whom and where. Um, so the states will administer it. Um, and they'll be responsible. The one thing I don't know is whether or not they're going to actually get any money to put programs into place. In all of the legislation that's being dis discussed right now, I think that that's possible. But the legislation, um, the um, infrastructure bill that was just passed, the Build Back Better bill that I think will probably be passed next week, 
I would think it's got money in it that addresses issues like this. Uh, I just can't say for sure because there's just so much meat to it that few people actually do know everything that's in it. But yeah, in a nutshell, the feds will mandate something. Um, the states will have to implement it. It's not uncommon for the feds to put in place what are called unfunded mandates, basically saying you need to do this. It's going to cost you money. And no, we're not going to give you any. Um, and that may be the case with some of these programs. So is it going to be standardized by uh, the federal government and then left up to the states to implement how they see fit? Uh, or I guess how much consistency or inconsistency is there in how these are actually going to be used state by state? Yeah, good question. Um, so in the Support Act, um, I am not familiar with uh, the details enough to say that there are specific standards, you know, a list of um, uh, this many requirements for how they exactly implement it. I would expect in a situation like this that they would put some overarching requirements in place and say, because they've done this actually already with uh, um, incentives for thing, adoption of things like electronic health records. Uh, the feds never said very specifically it has to be the systems or it has to do these very specific things, but it does have to do some overarching things. Um, you need they, uh, in those incentives, they, they did they tried to incentivize e-prescribing back then uh, by um, requiring that that be a part of the system that some hospitals adopted if they wanted to get federal funds for it. So in this situation, I believe that it's similar in, in, in that it's got to do certain things. It's got to communicate with the state registry um, so that the prescriptions that the, phys, uh, the pharmacists are sending out are then recorded in that registry for later data use. So give me your perspective here then. Does that amount of inconsistency create problems in administering uh, these tools correctly or in maximizing their use to see that impacting and intersecting with the larger issue of addressing and mitigating the opioid epidemic? Yeah, the lack of consistency. This is, I guess this is the downside of federalism, you might say. Um, the lack of consistency creates issues. Um, without the federal requirement, the issue is clearly that some states are doing it and other states are not. So, um, you know, if I'm an individual who suffers from addiction and I need or want to start going dock shopping, then I just cross state lines. Um, and if I go into, you know, if I go from Washington to Oregon, for example, Washington has programs in place, Oregon does not. I can go dock shopping in Oregon and there's not necessarily a record of that. So, that's what that's a situation that I think the federal legislation is designed to clear up. Um, from a technological perspective, is there a problem with a lack of consistency in terms of the technical solutions? I mean, there can be, yeah. Um, when it comes to actually sharing data, there are always um, challenges. Writing interfaces so that you you can communicate, a PDMP can communicate with an electronic health record. That's something that we have to do um, for our clients. We need to ensure that the health records that we sell can communicate with these um, external PDMP or um, providing uh, companies. And that is a challenge, but it's certainly not an insurmountable challenge. The lack of consistency um, that's created by not, all, by not all states having these programs in place and then enabling them to communicate with one another is a much larger problem than the technological challenges. 
So you mentioned again uh, that this is going to be a new set of regulations coming down from the federal government. Uh, there are specific requirements with the implementation of PDMPs and uh, EPCSs. Who do these requirements focus on specifically, right? Who is actually now going to have to change some of their day-to-day -day professional healthcare operations and workflows to implement these? And what is the intent of these focused professional role requirements? You know, if this is done correctly by people on my side, on the electronic side, um, I think pharmacists and, and providers are going to be most directly impacted. And I think they'd be happy to know that it would probably change their workflow uh, very little, if at all. Um, a pharmacist or a provider writes a prescription and sends it electronically to a pharmacist to be filled. Pharmacist fills that position. And then uh, that prescription is then recorded in the state database. Um, and there's an electronic record for all of that. And if it's set up so that it's automated, the pharmacist doesn't really need to do anything else. Now, right now, we've got a situation where um, I don't know, because, you know, an individual, these individual states are running their programs differently. There could easily be a situation if it's not very automated, if it's not very sophisticated, where a pharmacist is required to um, perhaps manually submit um, prescriptions that they fill. And if it's not automated and you're asking people to do additional tasks, that's when you start to get into trouble. You know, the humans are flawed. There's forgetfulness. There's there are errors in prescription writing. So we'd like to get to the point where the pharmacists and the providers who have the primary responsibility for this have to do nothing else. Everything's automated. Um, and on the back end, it's just taken care of and entered into the state registry. So if I'm a patient, uh, I am you know, being prescribed opioids, uh, or maybe even not, right? I'm just a once a year primary care kind of patient. Why would I want my state to have both a PDMP in place as well as an EPCS in place? Uh, how does the patient feel the benefits of these technologies being implemented holistically across uh, the care journey? Yeah. That's a good question. And I think um, that the answer to that really gets at the broader society more than it does the individual patient. I think the individual patient who maybe never use op uses opioids or, or only sparingly and um, caution cautiously. And actually, I was going to say earlier, one of the good things that's come about in healthcare in um, recent years is that patients are now frequently encouraged to be their own advocates. I think you um, you asked a question earlier that, that sort of got at this, um, the, the psychology of the, of the patient in these situations. Um, some patients are now, um, refusing to take things like Oxycontin and other opioids because they're concerns about addiction, um, uh, because there's more information out there, which I have to say is a positive, but if I'm a patient, um, or if I'm just a citizen, um, I'm aware that there's problems with addiction in just about every sizable city in the country at this point. And I'll probably never hear about PDMP or EPCS, but I would, what I would like to know is that there are programs in place that are, you know, dealing with these challenges in urban areas and helping people to beat their addiction and get back to, to having a normal productive life. So uh, let's talk about the, uh, these technologies themselves uh, in use and how you see them uh, creating touch points 
across the prescription of opioids uh, and to what effect. So if we look at a prescription drug monitoring program or an electronic uh, prescription for a controlled substance and uh, we have them implemented across the care journey, where is the monitoring actually focused from beginning to end of that prescription? And how does this help better identify potential opioid addiction uh, and offer some useful data for the physician or the patient? As I understand it, it's focused on the prescription. When the pharmacist um, fills the prescription, um, that's when, because to that point, you know, a lot of physicians write a lot of prescriptions and nothing ever happens to them. Um, a lot of patients actually never take them in to be filled. I think it's actually predominant. The majority of the people who receive restrictions don't get them filled, which is a concern, sidebar, a concern for a lot of physicians because those people probably need those, those drugs. But when the pharmacist actually fills the prescription, that's the electronic touch point. That's when the data goes into the database. So um, if you've got everything integrated, if you've got electronic health records that are then integrated um, through third-party providers with state databases, then that data should be available to the physicians um, at the point of care within the patient record. A physician in the ER might be dealing with someone who comes in and, and is complaining, you know, a tremendous of pain and please, uh, I need some help with this. And at that point, the ER doc can pull up the patient record and see a history um, of the patient's uh, prescriptions. Um, and they can also see the state registry and know if there are concerns about this, um, this particular patient's prescriptions and whether or not they might have an addiction challenge. And, you know, then that creates um, a tough decision for the ER doc, but it also gives him or her a, a clear picture of um, where that patient sitting in front of him or her sits and what their real needs are. How does this impact the day to day of the physician uh, being able to uh, track their prescriptions with more oversight and be able to have that data at hand when uh, mapping out a treatment journey for their patients? How do you see this proving itself to be useful again for the physician in their day to day? So um, data is only useful in terms of of whether or not you take action based on the data. And uh, like I said before, in an integrated system, it's the, the physician's gonna have the data. Um, and then they have decisions to make about how they act on it. You know, we're, uh, hopefully if it's just a system that's well integrated, it won't put any additional burden on the physician, but there may be the need to actually go to a state registry. If you had some concerns about an individual patient, there might be the need to go to the individual state registry and see um, if, their, um, if their prescription history is uh, recorded there. But at that point, you have to determine exactly how to move forward with a patient who might clearly be uh, suffering from addiction. And that um, is valuable data. But it's uh, data in introduced into a system that maybe doesn't necessarily have a protocol yet for dealing with it. Um, I don't know that the track record of most hospitals in terms of taking people who were clearly doctor, you know, or or doctor shopping and looking for opioids and trying to move them from there into some sort of 
um, rehabilitation program or getting them on one of the few drugs that are used to wean people off of opioids. I don't know that the track record um, in terms of moving from data to action is, is great. Um, and that's something um, that has to be discussed widely in the country in terms of programs, in terms of protocols for physicians in different hospitals. And then it becomes a matter of how does that hospital and how does that health system want to deal with this societal issue? They have the data. We've integrated these systems. The state has the registry. What's the policy and the protocol protocol going to be from that point? How are opioids and even more generally prescription drugs currently being prescribed and tracked, right? What is the standard now and how does implementing a PDMP and EPCS strategy fill in some of those gaps? Uh, good question. So this is going to be... Um, it's going to be something that's that's uh, going to trickle down to the individual clinic, you know, and then uh, it'll bubble up to um, hospitals and to health systems. And it could be fairly unsophisticated. There are still a fairly uh, large number of small hospitals in this country that don't have a lot of uh, financial resources and hence, they don't have sophisticated IT resources. So we still have hospitals that are at least partially on paper. And that would be where that data would reside. Um, and then would it be integrated into other systems? So it could be cross-referenced by other providers in other areas? It would not. No. Um, and then doctor shopping in one of the six states in D.C. where there is no cross-reference or very little cross-reference of this data becomes a piece of cake. Just go someplace else. Um and maybe that's actually too too glib. Doctors are now aware of the fact they know what um, doc shopping looks like and I think are um, have a heightened sense of awareness when they run into someone that might have an addiction issue. But how it functions now depends on uh, the level of sophistication and resources of the organization that you work for. And it's difficult to say anything definitive um, across healthcare and across the country. Well, even though it's difficult to um, make that kind of definitive assessment, we're going to try <laughs> because I'm going <laughs> to, I know, yeah, classic, right? Classic <laughs> podcast stuff. But uh, uh, I wanted to pose this your way of just, I guess, what do you think the ideal outcome of using a system like this at scale should be, right? If a uh, PDMP, if an EPCS strategy is implemented, it's implemented well, thoughtfully, the data is actually used, it's part of a coherent strategy, what should we be looking for out of the outcome and why? So um, academics, when you're trying to assess the cause of something, always talk about things that are necessary but not sufficient. So these two systems are nece absolutely necessary. In fact, essential, but they're not sufficient. Um, and they're basically just essential components of um, a larger nationwide um, integrated system and strategy that deals with um, the sort of plague of opioid abuse in the country. Um, and I think it has to be viewed that way. So, you know, when you're putting these systems in place, and uh, that's the federal government's goal when they uh, have mandates that require them in the states, you put these systems in place and say, okay, now we put a few bricks in the wall and we've got to go on to something else like uh, policy to help put the rest of the bricks in the wall. And if we can integrate all these things, 
um, and have actually a policy that's being implemented on the individual level with individual providers at clinics, at hospitals, then these, these electronic systems are essential in making that work. And at that point, so if identified, if I'm in the ER and identified a patient who seems to clearly have some addiction issues, at that point, the, pol- the hospital needs to have the policy in how we deal with that. We have a relationship with these um, uh, recovery provider programs, and we can get you in there. We're looking for a bed almost immediately. We can prescribe to you these medications um, that help wean you off the opioid that you're currently addicted to. Those are the things that follow on from putting these initial technological solutions in place. Doing that on a national level is a virtual impossibility. Doing it on a state level, comparable to you know, small countries in Europe we, where we've seen success with this model, is not impossible. And that's probably the way to attack it. I'm glad you brought up this just being part of a larger puzzle. I mean, we've seen digital transformations in healthcare over the last several years adopt electronic health records for their patients. And that has come with a lot of benefits, but also uh, a lot of its own challenges of just um, misdirected strategies for implementing them. And then I only bring this up because, um, you know, the technology is useful when it is implemented thoughtfully. And I think the data gathered uh, and how it's applied should have that same kind of mentality. So I'm curious how you see that manifesting. do you think that this prescription data should be used in any specific way in the larger context of an electronic patient record and just the mass amount of uh, patient data that is now being logged? Uh, what are your thoughts? Yes, the data, I think, that, uh, uh, yes, it should be used in different ways. Um, I think at a foundational level, um, it's used in a relationship between a doctor and a person suffering from addiction, it's used to identify that person's addiction when they maybe haven't come to terms with it and then get that individual into a rehabilitation program. But on a broader level, I mean, if you had individual databases at the state level and you rolled those up into some sort of national um, data evaluation program, you start to clearly see data where you'd know exactly where you have problems in the country. Um You'd know where, you know, some of these drugs were being shipped to areas where they, you know, in, in Dopesick, for example, there was a small town in West Virginia of about 400 people in the pharmacy there that got in millions and millions and millions of, of um, Oxycontin tablets. So you'd have a database of those things. And actually, if it was a real-time database, you'd start to see that almost immediately. So we'd know where the distribution was happening. Um We'd know where prescribing was most frequently happening. Um, we'd know what was being prescribed. And then you could cross-reference that, which I think is actually um, uh, what's happened, but not to a full extent. You can cross-reference that with other things. Like there are rises in crime in areas where there are problems with opioid abuse. Um, and you can come at these uh, social challenges with all the data that's necessary and uh, and respond to them with a combined public health and quote unquote, law enforcement uh, approach that deals directly with all of the fallout from from addiction and not just let's make sure that people don't get their their pills because it's not enough. Basically, you can't you, you really just can't take people who are fully addicted, ensure that they don't get their pills, then expect that the opioid problem will go away. There has to be some form of treatment and there has to be some form of empathy for the situation that they're in. So let's go ahead and wrap up by just pulling the camera back a little bit and uh, intersecting 
the implementation of this technology with the larger issue, which is again, the larger opioid epidemic and managing and mitigating it and treating those who've already been affected by it. Uh, how do you think that the larger healthcare industry should approach strategizing around and implementing technologies like a PDMP and an EPCS in that context of a, a larger strategy for addressing the opioid crisis, both uh, some of the uh, domino effects that come from it, as well as the structural issues, right? Um, the Sackler family sort of dynamic that you brought up earlier, right? I know that's kind of an entirely different notion here, and it's a different moving piece of the puzzle, but I'm just yeah. curious how you see this technology fitting into that larger picture of addressing the opioid epidemic. Right. Well, again, um, um, essential but not sufficient. Um, it's not... It, I mean, you comply with a federal mandate, really. Um, the, the feds put up money for smaller hospitals that can't afford it. They enable it, basically. You start with that. But um, and then you have an opioid program. Uh, if you're an, uh, um, if you're in an urban area and you're like a large university health system or a hospital or uh, part of a larger health system, then you're probably dealing with this on a fairly regular ba regular basis. So. I mean, if the databases are available and all the technical side of it's working well, then you come up with an opioid program. Do we have a relationship with a rehabilitation unit? Do we have one actually in-house already? Um, can we actually find beds almost immediately for people who come in and are clearly in a bad way? Um, what's our policy to deal with this when these people come into the emergency room? Or what's the policy when it's someone who's not even on the street but is still suffering from addiction if they come in and talk to a physician to try and get a script? That speaks to an insufficiency in the rehabilitation industry. The estimate is that uh, maybe 10% of all people who are addicted end up getting professional rehabilitative help. And that's that means a lot of people actually never get well or they die um, or they just deal with these addiction issues um, if they don't die from like an overdose for the rest of their lives. So um, the problem has always been that first of all, if you're suffering from addiction, um, there's the stigma associated with it. It's embarrassing. Um, and when people come into a hospital, they're script shopping or they're looking for help. It's an opportunity for the doctors. It's an opportunity to put that hospital's policy into place and try and get them to come to terms with their addiction and get them into rehab. But we also need um, additional help for people. Um, we've passed healthcare parity legislation, so requiring insurance companies to cover mental and health and addiction, um, but there isn't yet evidence that they're doing so on par with physical health. And the federal government who passed the legislation is now responsible to enforce it, ensure that insurance pays for these things that they've told them they have to. So it's not very satisfying to say it's in a, it's a one piece of a really big puzzle. Huh? And I, I think that's what I keep coming back to. I think with that, we'll go ahead and wrap up, David. Thank you so much for joining us and giving us your perspective here on uh, the current state of the opioid epidemic, uh, the new regulations around mandating PDMPs and EPCS strategies, and how this technology is going to, again, play an essential but not a complete and finalized role in addressing the opioid epidemic, excuse me, uh, and again, just how this should be treated as 
part of a larger strategy, uh, but better identifying for our audience what role it can play and how useful it's going to be. So thank you again to our guest, Mr. David McVarlin, Marketing Communications Manager at Medsphere Systems. David, if folks want to find out more about uh, your work in this space, about Medsphere's work in this space, or they just want to get in touch, how can they do so? Uh, Medsphere.com will give you all the contact information you need. Love it. Easy enough. David, thank you again for your time. Daniel, thank you. Have a good day. And thank you everyone for watching and listening to another episode of Full Circle Healthcare, a MedSphere podcast. If you like what you heard and saw and you want some previous episodes or you want to make sure you don't miss out on our next great thought leadership conversation, make sure that you're subscribing on uh, Apple Podcasts and Spotify and make sure that you're heading to our website, MedSphere.com. Again, M-E-D-S-P-H-E-R-E.com. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B, and we'll catch you on the next episode of Full Circle Healthcare.